I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. So today, November 26th, I want to first of all acknowledge that the big story is the hostage story. That is the main thing we're going to focus on. And I'll try to give you as much background as I know and maybe provide you with some details that you aren't familiar with yet. But before we get to that, I want to talk about some of the other stories that are going on before we get to the big one, before we get to the hostage story. Uh, first of all, there is political action happening in Israel right now. And I'm not sure if this made it into the media here, but there's a little bit of fighting going on once again between the far right wing edge of the government and sort of the centrist new government uh, represented by Benny Gans, who joined in an emergency cabinet. And this crisis represents uh, questions over budget. As you can imagine, this war is extremely expensive for Israel. It's I don't want to say decimating the economy. It's just forcing Israel to re-examine how it allocates all of its funds, in addition to paying for the war itself, the soldiers, the ammunition, all the military operations. There's also the subsidies to families who have been removed from their homes. There's the payments to relocate people from the south to hotels in a lot. There's uh, debates of how much money to give families throughout Israel whose businesses have been destroyed who, or who, people who've been laid off. I mean, the, the, budget, the budget repercussions um, are endless. And right now, uh, Betzalel Smotrich, who is the finance minister, and he's part of the far right coalition, he has control of the budget. And there's 900 million shekels, about uh, just over $250 million that, is, uh, that he's refusing to release to fund the war. This is discretionary spending that really should be going to fund the war right now. But he's insisting that he hold it for previously allocated projects. Um, over half of the money for these previously allocated projects includes... 300 million shekels, so almost a million dollars for settlements, building settlements in the West Bank, and another 200 million shekels to fund products for the ultra-Orthodox Haredi community. And the way I see it, uh, this is a no-brainer. The Israeli public knows that this money needs to go to fund the war and all the projects related to the war. Uh, already, this right-wing government is very looked down upon. People's faith in the government is at an all-time low. And I cannot understand why in these times the government would still insist on keeping this 900 million shekels for projects that include settlements and the Haredim. And I want to add that Benjamin Netanyahu has backed him up, has said you know, that he agrees with Smotrich and that this money should stay where it is and not be allocated to the war effort. Um, and and this this really personally boggles my mind. You know, I'm not going to, I guess I'll show my cards here, but I'm really stunned. Um, the fact of the matter is, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's approval rating is, you know, last time I checked, below 20%. Trust of Netanyahu is below 5%. Um, he should... He should do what the public wants and allocate this money toward the war effort. But nevertheless, he is not. And uh, Benny Gans is saying that if they don't allocate this 
money to the war, he's going to have to reconsider all options. Now, it's a very vague statement. We don't know what that means. Gans is a former chief of staff. I do not see him in any way insisting that the war end or scale be scaled back, the operations against Hamas. Uh, but it just shows you that even in times like this, when the country really is unified like never before, uh, political crises and these budget issues continue to play out. So another point that I wanted to bring up is Joe Biden. It was very interesting to me that when you know Biden commended the hostages being released, the first batch being released on Friday, but in his opening, in his remarks toward the beginning, he talked about the importance of a two-state solution. And to me, this just represents the vast gulf between Biden and the rest of the world's leaders and the Israeli people themselves. Um, I don't know any Israelis who are realistically talking about a two-state solution right now. The feeling is that we cannot have two a country or two countries or whatever you want to call it in the West Bank and Gaza that are terrorist states intent on destroying Israel. And you know, again, Biden and other world leaders are talking about Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority being the ones who would take control of Gaza. But Israelis are very against this. I mean, more and more we are learning about Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas's stance toward the war. An official from the Palestinian Authority, um, I think in the past few days it was, he said that the October 7th attacks were justified and part of the overall resistance of the Palestinian people. Mahmoud Abbas has continued to deny the, um, the rave attack in the south of Israel, even claiming that the IDF were the ones who perpetrated it or it was Israelis upon themselves. Um, he's refused to condemn the, uh, the attacks on October 7th. So... Israelis are saying, is this the guy we would want in charge of a country right next to ours, so proximate? You know, it's not like other enemies of ours. Even Iran is far away. Uh, Syria, there's the Golan Heights protecting us. The West Bank and Gaza, it's literally just a fence. Israel at its widest point is 12 miles across. There's this real sense of claustrophobia and being close to the enemy, and it's to me, it's just so striking that Biden and the rest of the world are talking about a two-state solution when right now Israelis have absolutely no trust um, for anyone, for anyone uh, on the Palestinian side to lead a country so close to the Israeli people. So that, um, you know, that delta, that daylight between the two visions uh, is completely striking. Now, that said, what do Israelis want to happen in Gaza after the you know Hamas is defeated as we hope it will be after this war is over. Um, many believe there should be some sort of international force taking over the United Nations plus uh, forces from from other countries. That's my personal. That would be my personal preference. Others uh, believe that Israel should be in Gaza, and some even believe that we should not just have the military in Gaza, but to me have. Israeli settlers in Gaza once again, essentially returning to where we were in July of 2005, right before we pulled out. As you may recall, Ariel Sharon, who was the architect of having settlements in Gaza, was the prime minister who pulled us out of Gaza in August of 2005. 
um, in what many thought would be a complete upheaval um, and completely you know, destroy Israel and put brother against brother in a civil war, but it really didn't. There was a lot of tears and a lot of angst, but uh, the Israelis who were there left for the most part peacefully. Now, unfortunately, we did not take care of them. We did not integrate them into Israeli society. Many of them went on to become what we call the hilltop youth right now. Those are the violent settlers in the West Bank. And another report came out this past week that two officials in the IDF um, anonymously, they did not want to be named, but they said that Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is you know, in bed with Smotrich and Netanyahu, he's another right winger, um, he, that he explicitly gave orders to the police not to crack down on settler violence in the West Bank against Palestinians. And he didn't exactly deny it. He said that, you know, some sort of vague statement about uh, we have to, you know, we respect um, we respect our neighbors. And as the police, we need to do our best to appease all sides and keep the peace and blah, blah, blah. But uh, he really didn't deny this. And um, I would tend to believe that that would be true, that he would give an order to the police to go not, not just go easy, but to pretty much ignore any uh, settler violence. But this is going to become more and more of an issue. So at the same, you know, at the same time that Israelis don't believe in a two state solution right now because they don't feel they can trust anyone there. I think many Israelis are waking up to the idea that the West Bank, the settlements, the settlers are poisonous and that any sort of long term safety that Israel needs to have is going to depend on fixing what's happening in the West Bank itself. Um, so Israel's next prime minister, whoever that is, I believe it'll be Benny Gans, but that is one of the that is one of the tasks that he or she will have to take upon themselves is addressing the head the West Bank head on because for too long it's been allowed to fester. No one's really been watching or paying attention to the extent that they have. They've simply allowed the violence to continue. And Israelis are realizing it's not just unfair to the Palestinians who live there in terms of human rights. It's detrimental to the safety and health and well-being of Israelis, Jewish Israelis themselves within Israel. So that was another takeaway that I came away with from uh, this week. You know, an, another thought I had, and I guess I'd be curious to hear from you guys um, who actually live here. I'm here on this three-month book tour, but I don't live here permanently as I do live in Israel. But one thing I'm noticing is how much attention the American election in 2024, just about just under a year from now, how much attention that is getting. And it makes me wonder if sooner or later, possibly sooner, all the protests of Israel and all the talk about Gaza will, will be buried by the bigger political story of the presidential election and the Senate and House elections that's coming up in 11 and a half months from now. Not that I'm saying I'm not worried about anti-Semitism, not that I'm saying I'm not worried about anti-Israel sentiment, but I do wonder if maybe uh, maybe we're overestimating a little bit just how important it is and that soon enough, the American election is going to take a front seat and that a lot of people will sort of move on from what might be sort of a trendy support of Palestinians in Gaza and the Gazan cause and even Hamas, if they lump them all together, uh, but that these are issues they might not really care about and what they really care about will soon take precedence and maybe yeah, just maybe we shouldn't worry so much. It's a thought that crossed my mind and I'd be curious to hear from you in the comments or at the end what you think of that. Uh, a final little piece of uh, just 
interesting news before we move on to the hostages is that um, there's been a little bit of an uptick in certain baby names. 17,000 babies have been born in Israel since October 7th, just about over 17,000. And there's been a slight uptick in the names Oz and Be'eri. Um, those are the names of two kibbutzim that were heavily attacked on uh, on October 7th. And it's sort of, um, it's sort of telling that uh, Israel, you know, speaks a lot about it to Israeli society that uh, there's a there's a little bit of an increase in the names Oz and Be'eri among newborn newborn babies. Uh, this has happened before in Israel. When when researching this point, I found out that after the Yom Kippur War, one of the more popular names was Maya Mem Yud Hey, which are the initials for Milchemet Yom Hakippurim Yom Kippur War, and after uh, Tzuketan. Uh, in 2014, apparently the names Tsuk and Eitan were more popular, as was the name Uri. And uh, this is after Uri Grossman, the son of the famed novelist David Grossman, uh, whose son Uri fell in, uh, actually, I believe it was 2006. Uh, he was a tank commander and fell in Lebanon uh, right before the ceasefire um, was declared. But uh, apparently Uri was a popular name after he fell as well. And this is sort of a tradition in Israel to memorialize, you know, those those we love by naming children after them. So I just thought I would I would share that. Okay. Now let's move on to really what is the prime story of the week. And uh, this is the hostages. So far, a total of 40 Israeli hostages have been released. One of them is an Israeli American, a four-year-old who sadly, whose parents were murdered. And uh, in addition to those 40 Israelis, a number of Thai nationals and Filipino nationals, one Russian Israeli were also uh, released. But what we're focusing on are the uh, the 40 Israelis. And there are, there are many aspects to the story. And so I just wanna give you some of the takeaways that I came away with uh, in no particular order, but sort of to help you understand the Israeli context of how Israelis are seeing this. Uh, the first thing I'll point out is that on Friday, especially when that first round of hostages were released, uh, I, I hate to use the phrase must see TV because it really cheapens what it was, but Israelis were glued to this story. It was finally a tiny sliver of happiness after 50 plus days of this horrifying situation. And Israelis were watching the story in real time, uh, the same way you might watch the Super Bowl starting that morning, watching the uh, players gather in the hotel and then get on the bus and ride to the stadium and the fans gathering outside step by step before the actual game itself. Israelis were doing the same thing. They were looking at the Red Cross vans driving to the checkpoint and then seeing the Red Cross, Cross vans leave the checkpoint and trying to identify who is inside. Uh, it, was, it was exciting, but also heartbreaking. Nobody knew exactly who was being released. And this is where the role of the government comes in. Uh, this is once again, a, uh, a situation where the Israeli government many believe, just didn't play it right. They did not announce the names. They had the names of the 13 who were released. 
They did not make them public. So instead, how did the public in Israel find out who was released? They found out from television news stations who were situated in various, again, I hate to call them watch parties, but they kind of were watch parties. They were groups of people getting together, watching the hostages being released. And especially on the kibbutzim, down in a lot, you had groups from these kibbutzim together, and they would look at the television screen and see certain figures inside the Red Cross vehicles, and they were able to identify. They could say, oh, that, that looks like Alma. Oh, that looks like uh, Dana and by, because of her hair and, the way, and her posture. And so the Israeli public was learning who was released, not through an official government statement, but by people at home who were able to identify the hostages through the windows of Red Cross vans. And um, and many people felt that the Israeli government missed an opportunity there to keep the public informed and to put itself forward and look like a responsible organizing party. It was very striking to me. They interviewed, uh, they interviewed one of the, I believe it was a sister of someone who was being released. And she said, she had a slip up on television. She said, I just want to say a big thank you to the government for doing such a great job. Sorry, sorry, not the government. I mean the Israeli civilians. And she corrected herself. She said government, but then she quickly corrected herself and even said, no, 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 not the government. Uh, you know, even on television, when hostages were being released, uh, people were making a point that the government has not stepped up to the plate. That's really the, the, the civilians, the citizens of Israel. A lot of people are saying that memshallah ezrahi, which means a civilian government. The idea being that civilians are leading Israel right now and the government is absent. Um, in, in another example of this is what I talked about before with these 900 million disputed shekels, which uh, the government is still fighting over whether it show, should go to settlements or Haredim when clearly it needs to go to the war. Um, so even here with the, with the release of hostages, um, there, there, was, uh, there was disappointment that the government really hadn't kept the, the people as informed as they should be. Now, that said... Uh, I think this is a very complicated situation and that the Israeli government certainly is not really to blame. Um, all in all, what we're seeing is that Hamas is still manipulating the situation. You know, they claim they would release children with mothers. There have already been cases where a child, at least one child, was released and the mother was kept behind. Um, and that brings me to another point that as joyous as this release of the hostages is, it is bittersweet. It is not a complete joy. Um, those of you who are on my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you know that I really feel that Hebrew words can tell the story of who we are and what's happening okay. in our lives. My and, guys, if you could just keep your microphones off, that would be great. So I'm the only one heard. And there's a new word that I'm hearing over the past few days on uh, in the Israeli media. And that word is etzev, ayin Sadik bet etzev and etzev is not a very common word uh but it's it sort of means troubled but in a nerve-wracking bothersome sort of way and that's how a lot of people are describing the mood of the israeli people right now seeing all these hostages released that on the one hand it's simcha and osher which is joy and happiness but on the other hand it's etzev it's this painful gnawing uh, sadness because, well, for a few reasons. First of all, we know that there are still 
more than 180 hostages still in Gaza. So even as we're seeing 13 come out and another 13 and 14 today, we still know that there are so many left and we don't know how hopeful we can actually be about them. Um, we know that many of those hostages, most hostages coming home are coming home to bad news. Uh, and on Friday, of the 13 that were released on Friday, there wasn't a single hostage released who didn't still have someone from their family being held in Gaza or who had someone from their immediate family murdered. There was no one who was coming home to a full family. Either they were leaving someone behind in Gaza, whether it was a brother or a husband, or they were coming home. I mean, the, the four-year-old today who's coming home and both of her parents were murdered yes she's back in israel but she no longer has parents and even those who are coming back to complete families they don't have homes anymore i mean the psychologists agree that the best thing for anyone would be to acclimate back into society going to your happy place the place where you're most comfortable where you most feel at home but they don't have homes their homes have been destroyed now the question is did they know their homes were destroyed i think it's did they know their family members were murdered? I think it it's on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, there was one older woman who said that she was able to see the news and that she even had access to Walla, which is one of the Hebrew news sites. And so she knew that her son had been murdered. Uh, I think there are others, though, who didn't quite realize the extent to the damage to their homes or that their entire kibbutz had been destroyed. Um, there's one young woman, Maya, from... Uh, Hoda Sharon, which is right near the town I live in, um, of Ra'anana. And she came back, but her brother that she was taken with is still in Gaza. And you can see a video of her reuniting with her parents and the sobs you hear from her. It's, uh, it's traumatic and it shakes you. Um, she was also the only one so far who had to be Im immediately rushed to a hospital. She was shot on October 7th in the leg. And she underwent surgery today, and, and word is that she's going to have to undergo multiple more surgeries. Uh, she is conscious and she is stable. But again, people are not coming home to peace. And, you know, it's so interesting. In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. But the root of that word is shin lamed mem, which means whole. You know, peace in Judaism, in Hebrew, is a sense of wholeness. It doesn't mean a lack of war. It means a sense of wholeness. And... Right now, people are not coming home to that kind of shalom. They're not coming home to wholeness. They have family left behind, and uh, they have family who's been lost. Um, so this is really step one of what will be a very long journey. And unfortunately, you had to see newscasters urging the government to make the recovery process easy for these returning hostages. They said, government, they, you know, they're literally talking to the government and saying, Memshallah, government, we need you to make the process as smooth as possible. If they need money, don't inundate them with paperwork. Don't force them to jump through a lot of hoops. Help these returning hostages acclimate back into society as quickly and as smoothly as possible. Um, and it's sort of uh, it's sort of a shame that TV news anchors have to um, have to speak that directly to the government. But um, you know, with this government, a lot of few people feel that they are sort of tone deaf, and that that would be the only way to get the message through. In terms of what else is happening with the, I mentioned Hamas manipulating it. So yes, how is Hamas manipulating the release of the hostages? Well, uh, 
They've been late every single time. It hasn't been on time. They accused Israel of not upholding their end of the bargain by not allowing enough fuel and aid into Gaza. We all know that the real reason they want fuel is so that they can power their rockets and uh, and keep their generators going that will pump oxygen down into the tunnels. This is not fuel that will help the, Pal the Palestinian people living in Gaza. This is fuel that will help Hamas. And they claimed that they were going to break the ceasefire because Israel wasn't holding up um, if you, uh, because they weren't holding up their end of Israel wasn't holding up their end of the bargain. As I mentioned, they released kids without their mothers, uh, at least in at least one case. There's a nine month old baby who still has not been released. And many people are wondering why if you're releasing mothers and children first priority, why are you releasing older women in their 90s? They released a 95 year old woman. Why are you not releasing a nine month old baby? And it's making it's leading to a lot of speculation. Is Hamas doing this as a way of psychological torture by keeping some of the youngest and most vulnerable still behind? Or is it possibly that Hamas really doesn't know where all these hostages are? You know, some are believing that Hamas is only releasing hostages who will look good to the world, who are relatively healthy, able to walk on two feet. Um, I must say most of the reports are that most hostages, aside from Maya, although they're malnourished and they're tired, they are healthy. They seem to be in okay spirits. They were smiling when they saw they loved their loved ones. Uh, they were hugging. Children started playing with the toys they were given um, by Israel as they accepted them back in. So they seemed psychologically okay and physically uh, okay, which also raises speculation that perhaps Hamas is only releasing the ones who are okay and that they're uh, keeping the unhealthy ones, um, the ones who aren't healthy enough to walk, the ones who might look bad, make Hamas look bad, that they're keeping them, uh, them behind. Uh, you know, and, and also Hamas, we're just also catching them in their lives. One of the hostages who was released is an 85-year-old woman who Hamas said had been killed by an Israeli airstrike, and here they released her immediately. Uh, so we're we're seeing who we're negotiating with. We're seeing who's on the other side. And that's all the more reason that it's just strengthened Israel's resolve to try to uh, continue this war as soon as the exchange is done. Now, Hamas has indicated that they want this ceasefire to continue. I am not surprised. The longer the ceasefire goes on, the more Hamas can call attention to the Palestinian cause, to the you know, the dead Gazans who always look good for Hamas in the media. And it also gives them a chance to prepare uh, their arsenals for the war that is ahead against Israel. And the deal with this ceasefire is that for every day that the ceasefire is extended, it requires 10 more Israeli hostages to be negotiate uh, to be released. I think the negotiation was for up to 13 more days, so up to 130 more hostages. Now, it is worth noting that according to Hamas, any male above the age of 17, so any male 18 years old or older who's Jewish, is considered a soldier, a fighter for the Jewish people. So even men in their 70s, 80s, they are considered soldiers, and Hamas says that it will not release for the time being any soldiers. So we're not just talking about soldiers who were kidnapped that day in uniform, and there were quite a few who were, uh, we're talking about 
any male 18 or over. So that's just another um, another note that I think is is worth sharing as we as we analyze all this. Um, I am seeing so what the health uh, in terms of food. One of the women said that all she's eaten for the past 50 days is rice. Another said that all they'd eaten was one meal a day of pita and salad. Um, I, I would imagine they're being held in different locations. Nutrition is a factor. Also, not overfeeding the hostages as they come immediately back uh, is is also uh, something that Israel is taking account of. And the the preparations for this were immense. You know, Israel has taken a lot of. They've gone about it in a very special, very. I was going to say special, and it is special, but a very careful, prudent, and special way. Um, you can see pictures that even on the helicopter that was going to airlift the hostages from uh, one checkpoint to uh, the Hatseri military base, they had toys laid out for the children. They had a Rubik's Cube. There's this one kid, I believe his name is Ohad, who's nine years old, and he's a cuber. He loves to Rubik's Cube. Um, and some Rubik's Cubers in Israel created some Rubik's Cube art. They each turn their cubes in a certain way that when you line them up, you get a portrait of Ohad. Um, and they had a cube ready for him uh, on the on the helicopter. So when he would board, he would have that. Uh, all the kids had toys ready for them in the hospital when they came. Um, in the hospitals, hostages, when they go to the hospital, are given a ward all by themselves. They knew that people would be curious, people would be stopping by, would want to get to them. And so they created a ward just for hostages in every hospital that they're going in. So they have private time with their families and are not uh, are not you know overrun by the press and other curious patients. Uh, one, you know, I want to talk about the public. How is the public reacting to the release of the hostages? I must say, it's really incredibly special. Um, it's one of the reasons I live in Israel, despite how difficult it is. It is extremely difficult to live in Israel. And maybe in a different conversation, I'll, I'll explain in detail why it is. I mean, just the realities, whether it's the expense of living there or an educational system that's okay, but not, you know, not what I was accustomed when I sent uh, my kids to private Jewish day school in the U.S., uh, the building, the construction that's nonstop and the dust everywhere from that. I mean, there are myriad reasons why Israel, uh, Israeli life is more difficult than uh, you know, certainly in the U.S. on many levels. However, the reason I live there is I think we saw so much of what I was watching this past weekend when hostages released just reminded, reminded me why I live there and why I want to raise my kids there. It's very special to be part of a people who is rooting for you and where you feel part of the narrative and where you feel part of the story and where your story is not forgotten. When the hostages were released, uh, people came out into the streets waving Israeli flags, cheering the minivans, carrying the hostages as they drove through Israel toward the hospitals and military bases where they were being taken. Uh, I was so impressed that last night in Tel Aviv, there was a rally. A hundred thousand people came out to rally in favor of releasing more hostages. It would have been so easy to forget that there were 183 hostages left. Uh, and to just elate in the moment of these hostages being released. But Israelis do not. And they they remember their own and they look out for each other. And that's why even when the government seems to be letting us down, it's still an incredibly special place to live, uh, to feel like you're amongst people who are on your side. Uh, it means so much to me. And uh, I think it says so much about the Israeli people, the way they're coming together for uh, each other right now. 
And even, you know, one of the spokespeople for the hostage movement is uh, this man from the south named Yoni. Uh, his wife and two children were uh, in Gaza, and they were the among the first released on Friday. And he released a video where he talked about how thankful he was to the army and to all those who worked behind the scenes to release his wife and two kids and the other hostages released that day. But then he spent a significant amount of time in this video talking about how he will not rest until the rest of the hostages are released. And everyone is saying that. Every family member who's welcoming their family back from Gaza is saying this is not over until all the hostages are out. Um, you know, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of that concept of Israeliness. that in addition to Israel and Israelis, there's this thing called Israeliness. And I think an example of Israeliness is the way no Israeli will rest until all the hostages are out. It's not just your own family. It's really uh, everyone. I do want to, I have one more point that I want to make, but I'm going to quickly make um, my friend Neil a co-host. That way he can, he can help me organize some of the questions here. So Neil, thank you for offering to do that. I'm going to go ahead and make a co-host. Thank you, Neil. All right, so Neil, if you could sort of get those questions in order. And meanwhile, I'm gonna go ahead and talk about one more point. One thing that I've seen in the past few days in Israeli media is a lot of older male, usually former military people or former politicians sitting on the news and saying how we have got Hamas right where we want them, our heels are on the necks of Hamas, a lot of chest thumping and saying Hamas wants this ceasefire to extend because they're so weak. It shows you how powerful the IDF is. It shows you that we are winning this war, et cetera, et cetera. And I got to tell you, on a personal level, this frightens me a little bit. What I'm smelling here is a little bit of that old-fashioned male Israeli um, arrogance that I feel is part of the reason October 7th was even allowed to happen in the first place. You know, there have been many reports that it's not that we missed the intelligence, it's that we had the intelligence, but no one did anything with it, either because it came from young 18-year-old women soldiers who people didn't take so seriously, or because there was just this general notion that Hamas, we've got them, we're the IDF, the army will win, no one has anything on us. and. I I just feel we need to take a little you know slice of humble pie here and be a little bit more humble, exercise a little more humility, and realize that when it comes to Hamas, you really have no idea what is coming next. We shouldn't ever underestimate them, especially because I said in our last episode of this that there are two big X factors that can change how the war is going to be fought. Number one, and most importantly, the fact that soon we'll be going underground. The IDF in the next phase is going to have to move into central and south Gaza. There's million, you know, what a million refugees, maybe more in south Gaza right now, which means we're not fighting in north Gaza, where it was relatively empty. I think 90% of the population had left, but now we're going to be fighting amongst a civilian population. And also the tunnel network. We, at some point, to finish this job, will have to take care of the tunnels, maybe even enter the tunnels 
And that is Hamas's home field advantage. So that's one big X factor that we're about to go into their territory where they want us, which is underground, where they have the advantage. So we shouldn't thump our chests just yet. And the other big factor, which is so easy to overlook, is the weather. You know, as we move into winter, and we've already had a number of rainstorms, especially with all the heavy equipment necessary, the tanks, the Humvees, the armored personnel carriers, the uh, combat engineers rely on these huge, you can look them up online, huge tractors weighing tons to demolish tunnels and buildings. Um, that all functions differently in the rain, in the mud, and um, and that can be impactful as well. So I just wish there would be a little less of the bravado and a little more acknowledgement of just how difficult the road is ahead. I mean, look, God willing, it won't be difficult. It will be easy, but uh, I think we need to prepare for the fact that there are still a lot of challenges ahead, at least you know, Yoav Galant said at least two more months of fighting. I think that's an underestimate. It's going to be more than that. Um, I think what he means is two months of this kind of intensive fighting and then troops staying there for a longer time, possibly up to a year to really root out Hamas. Uh, but this, is, um, this isn't behind us just yet. That said, it's been wonderful to see some hostages released and finally have a little bit of joy after such a harrowing and difficult 50 plus days. Uh, since October 7th. So, Neil, I'm going to put it in your hands now. Feel free to turn on your mic. If you have any questions you want to put at me that maybe seem similar to each other, that would be helpful. I'm not hearing anything, Neil, but uh, I'll go ahead and address one of the questions here about female watchers who for weeks warned about suspicious activity was brewing. They were dismissed and ignored to everybody's peril. What have you heard about this? Uh, so yeah, happy to talk about it. I actually mentioned this a little bit more at length in last week's um, last week's broadcast, but I'll talk about it again. It's a hard word to say. Tatspitaniot. Yes, tatspit means a lookout. Tsofe uh, is to look. Tatspitaniot are the soldiers whose job is to monitor the border. It's all over. Every border we have in the north, Golan Heights, Syria, Lebanon, down to the south, Egypt and Gaza. These are young women, typically just out of basic training, so 18 years old in a few months, up through age 20, maybe 21. And their job is to monitor te television screens and other devices, but for the most part, TV screens, where they are watching the border. And uh, it's been a number of them have gone on record now saying that for months and months, they were warning their superiors, who were usually male and much older, that they were seeing unusual activity happening in Gaza, including what you might call dress rehearsals for October 7th. They had built a mock tank that they practiced taking over. They had the white Jeeps. They had motorcycles. They had a fence that they practiced breaking through and kidnapping. I mean, they were rehearsing for October 7th right before our eyes. And we didn't miss that intelligence. These female Tatspitaniyot uh, actually notified their superiors, but they were ignored. And many believe that it was simple sexism, that uh, having these young women uh, being the ones giving the news that they were just sort of, you know, brushed off is like, uh, what do you know? And uh, that's that that's one of the big stories, right? You know, right now is uh, is how and why their intelligence was ignored. And that's some of the arrogance I was alluding to uh, a little bit before. Now, 
there is going to be a full investigation once this war is finished. And uh, I think there'll be a lot of changes in the army and army policy. There will be resignations, no doubt. Uh, but this is definitely one of the stories that uh, has, has kind of rocked Israel in the past two weeks as we realized, you know, for so long, the question was, how could we miss this? And now the question is, why did we miss this? You know, we had it. Why did we just let it go? So someone asked, is it true that no one in the government ever contacted the families of the hostages? What's the explanation for such insensitive and unprofessional conduct? For many, many weeks, uh, no one from the government had been in touch with some of the families of the hostages. Um, you know, civilians were acting to to help identify who'd been taken. High-tech companies were using AI technology, pivoting their efforts to develop technology to help identify the hostages who'd been kidnapped versus who had been killed inside Israel that were still missing. Um, Netanyahu didn't meet with families for the hostages, I think it was maybe four or five weeks in. Um, what's the reason for this? What's the excuse? I mean, just, there's no reason. I mean, there's no good, there's no good reason except you know, blundering politicians who uh, who are totally forgetting what their mission is and what they've been hired to do. Um, but I, I must say the the Israeli public is really not an angry public right now. For the most part, it's, you know, Kadima, it's ahead, it's getting the hostages home. Uh, it's sort of accepting that right now the, the public is going to have to do a lot of the work. My wife is still uh, working very, very hard to fundraise and collect uh, items. And this actually reminds me, so many of you have asked, how can we help? Uh, and I actually found uh, someone had asked this last week. So um, I want to put this web address down. It is www.israelfoodrescue.com. So I don't know if that's going to be linkable here. I think you have to do HTTP. Okay. Israelfoodrescue.com. Yeah, now you can click that link. Uh, through that program, my own father is able to come to Israel. He's coming on December 9th. For two weeks, he'll be picking vegetables and fruit uh, in the south. He'll be staying in Jerusalem. Um, through this program, you're required to make a $1,000 donation to Leket Israel, which is a wonderful charity. I've done fundraisers for them, performing comedy before. I love what they do. They're based in Ra'anana, and I volunteered there myself. So in addition to that $1,000 donation, you also pay for your airline ticket over. But then they um, they house you in Jerusalem. Um, it's bring, I must say, I don't know if my dad's on this call or not, but it's bringing him a lot of joy. Uh, I think the most practical way to help Israel if you're 76 years old is probably to donate money and have that money be allocated. But uh, it's making him happy to know that he can actually come and work with his hands. You know, he'd worked on kibbutz when he was in his 20s and sort of full circle to be able to come back now. He's in a WhatsApp group where other people his age are talking about what they're going to be bringing and uh, how to pack. And uh, it that excitement of volunteering and helping you know, as Heschel said, I'm praying with my feet. Sometimes you need to give money. Sometimes you need to pray. And sometimes you need to pray with your feet. And here's an example of how you can pray with your feet. And he, like I said, other programs, you needed to be 40 or younger to come and pick fruit and vegetables. But this one, apparently there is no age limit. So if you're over age 40, which oh, so many of us are, uh, this is a good one to check out if you actually want to fly to Israel and do some picking. And why is this um, Why is this necessary? It's because all of our Thai workers and other foreign workers have gone back to Thailand 
Uh, and they're the ones who pick our fruits and vegetables. And this is a crisis that Israel is facing. There's actually an article on CNN today. You might want to check it out. You can just Google that. But they talk about why it is so necessary. Um, someone asked, can I make this Zoom series as a whole available to view by people who have not seen it? Yeah, people email me a lot asking how they can see it. In future weeks, probably in about two weeks from now, I'm going to have a new page of my website, which is going to have every uh, episode of this, a video recording. It's also being turned into a podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes and Spotify. Logistically, it's taking a little longer than I thought to get that up and running, so it, it's not ready just yet. For the time being, every Thursday in my newsletter, I send out a link to the previous broadcast. So this broadcast right now, which is being recorded, it's going to go up by Thursday on either my Facebook page or YouTube or possibly both. And I will share, I will share that link in the Thursday newsletter. And just in case you are not on my newsletter, which at this point, if you're not, I have no idea why it's time, but there is the website, joelchaznoff.com. Just go there at the very bottom. It says Hebrew is magic. That's my newsletter. You get a Hebrew word every week, which I dissect and talk about the hidden meaning and also the links to upcoming broadcasts of this and the recordings. I'm also putting a lot of effort into Instagram, doing some uh, tribute videos to uh, heroes, doing some um, to heroes of the operations in Israel right now, uh, doing tributes to lone soldiers. If you would like to see any of that, you can just do uh, just go to my Instagram, which is at Joel Chasnoff. Um, Instagram.com dot at and then at Joel Chasnoff is the handle. All right, let's see if we can get another can I talk about Khan Yunus? Is that the next battle? Yes, Khan Yunus is a big sort of city slash refugee camp in the middle of Gaza. There's a lot of uh, Hamas strongholds there, numerous tunnels. And uh, Neil, that's exactly how to phrase it. It is the next battle. That's what is the IDF is preparing for. It's also why extending the ceasefire is scary because every day that we extend it is another day that Hamas has to prepare to build up its arsenal, uh, to shift around its fighters. It's been estimated that about 5,000 Hamas terrorists have been killed, but that leaves, you know, 20 to 30, 20 to 25,000. Uh, I mean, by far, most of them are still are still able to fight. We found so many weapon stashes that we know they are armed. And we also saw, we've been seeing, this sort of loops back to what I said earlier about the West Bank. We've seen how they've reacted. Um, you know, in the West Bank, in, it came out this week that in schools run by the Palestinian Authority, children were cheering and celebrating uh, the attacks of October 7th. Now, if anyone believes that this is our peace partner, then we're supposed to turn over Gaza and the West Bank to them and have a, a you know, state next to ours. Um, you know, that's why so many Israelis feel it's, it's absurd that um, it's just, you know, the same the same dish, slightly different recipe, you might say. So, um, you know, the what we're seeing with in Khan Yunus is, is that is the next battle. And then from there, working our way south. And because all the refugees fled south, uh, really, the question is, how are we going to fight this with all of the um, all of the Gazans who've now gone there? Uh, it would be great if they could go into Egypt. Egypt is not accepting them. Uh, Israel's called out to some European countries. Hey, if each of your countries could take 10,000 each because you care so much, you know, that would help the situation. So far, no takers. So, um, you know, I think it shows you a lot of what this is really about. Let's see if there are any other questions. Neil, any other uh, 
questions that uh, sort of go together? About, they were asking about the the possibility of drugs and uh, stuff that the that the uh, terrorists were on at the time. Wow! So someone's really been doing their homework. Yes, um, I was actually planning to dedicate a segment to this in a future broadcast, and I still will. I haven't researched it fully. So all I'm going to tell you is what I know for sure. And then let's talk about it more perhaps next week and have I can have this ready. But it's been found that on many of the terrorists on October 7th, they had a certain drug, which is like a super amphetamine. And I forget what that drug is called, but it pumps you up, kind of turns you into an animal, takes down all barriers anything that would stop you from behaving uh in certain ways capped to yeah capped again i think apparently it's made in syria it's a big party drug in the arab world including in dubai and united arab emirates and other places uh and many believe it's been batted around that one of the ideas that there's been such a high murder rate in israel's arab communities this year i think we have one of the highest murder rates ever uh, is because of the ubiquity of this drug that it it really um, that anything that sort of regulates your behavior is is wiped out when you're on this like super amphetamine, um, and this was found on some of the terrorists, um, you know that that day. So it was believed that this was part of part of the strategy was to get them uh, this you know this riled up and. And also makes you fearless. So when they were facing, you know, facing tanks and bullets, they would just keep fighting. They 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 had no sense of saving themselves. Now, if we're talking about drugs, there's another side of the drug story too, and also one that I want to explain further in in a future episode. But that's that the drugs that many of the partygoers were on. You know, many of the Israeli partygoers at this supernova festival were on uh, different drugs, whether it's ecstasy or others. And so, what's been found is that the trauma that they went through on October 7th, those who are still living, is a different kind of trauma altogether, that it was processed by the brain in a completely different way because of the drugs that they were on. And uh, so Israel is having to find some very unique treatments to help them. And already there have been some developed, some using horses and, and, and animals and others with water. And uh, But that's another way that the drug story comes into play here. Again, I don't want to speak about things I don't know the full story about, but it's an angle we should explore in a, uh, in a future broadcast of this. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.